Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, Can He Do That listeners. My name is Carol Alderman. I'm the producer here on the show, and I'll be filling in for Allison Michaels this week. And what a week it has been. Through two closed-door sessions and one public hearing, Michael Cohen, President Trump's former longtime lawyer and self-described fixer, testified to Congress. It's likely the last time we'll hear from him publicly before he begins a three-year prison sentence for financial crimes and lying to lawmakers to protect Trump. In the explosive televised hearing on Wednesday, WikiLeaks, the Trump Tower meeting, and the Trump Organization's business dealings were all on the agenda. So what can we learn from Cohen's testimony and from the way legislators questioned him? And where does this hearing fit into the broader picture of ongoing and potential future investigations? I went to Mark Fisher, senior editor for The Post and co-author of Trump Revealed, to gain some deeper insight into Michael Cohen and the hearing. Michael Cohen lives for being the guy who gets things done. He was the guy who made problems go away for Donald Trump. He did that through bluster, through brash kind of threats. He did it through negotiations. And he could be a very brutal person in terms of the way he uh, went about protecting Donald Trump. We did not see the tough guy, Michael Cohen, that reporters and lawyers and negotiators have come to see over many years. What we saw instead was a kind of a hangdog, sad sack, kind of a broken man. Michael Cohen came before Congress as a guy who could barely muster a smile, who was beaten down in many ways and willing, perhaps eager, to bash his former employer in every way he could think of, from giving details of business deals that were unethical to essentially accusing the president of obstructing justice. Cohen's essential message was, this is a guy who's in it for himself. This is a guy who really doesn't have the American people's best interests at heart. And Cohen tried to get this across by giving examples of how Trump operates. And it really was, it was almost like a scene out of The Godfather Part Two, portraying this leader as someone who operates almost by the rules of the mob, uh, the, the same kind of language, the same kind of rhetoric, even the body language. And I think that really, that, that the, the way Cohen presented himself and, and that world was more important than any of the specifics that he uh, gave us about individual decisions or possible uh, illegal activities. The more prosecutors have looked into Donald Trump both in his actions as president, as presidential candidate, and as business mogul going back for decades. Prosecutors in Washington and New York have zeroed in on a number of 
incidents in which Michael Cohn was deeply involved. And so he has been dragged into the ongoing investigations, both by Robert Mueller and the special counsel's office in Washington and by the federal prosecutors in New York, the so-called Southern District of New York. And uh, Cohn has proven to be rather useful to these investigators. And that's what led him to come before Congress this week and brought to Congress some of the details, but really more of a kind of broad overview of how Trump and the Trump organization work. Very different from what he's telling the prosecutors, which is much more of the nitty gritty detail that he was reluctant to or forbidden from getting into in public before Congress. Obviously, there's a level of frankness that goes on in the closed hearing that we don't get to see on TV. But I'm not sure that Congress members are getting a whole lot more detail than what we heard in public. The prosecutors have put some real guardrails on what Michael Cohn can talk about. And he said that during the public testimony. There are certain kinds of issues that he's in active discussion with the prosecutors in an effort to reduce his own prison time. And that is something that he is eager to do. So he's not going to jeopardize that by talking to a bunch of politicians in Congress. I think what you're starting to see from the Democrats um, now that they have the majority in the House is that they are pushing to have their investigation run concurrently with the federal prosecutor's investigations. And I think they see themselves as being able to look into things that don't necessarily lead to an indictment, that are not strictly criminal matters. They're looking into sort of creating this larger portrait, this this sort of wide-ranging mural of how Trump world worked. And if along the way they find illegal deeds, then there are certainly going to be voices that call for impeachment. But I think their mission is broader than that. So for the Democrats, there was a PR boost in showing Michael Cohn and Trump world for what they are. For Republicans, Michael Cohn's appearance was not so bad either because it was a way for them to rally around and say, look, the Democrats are really stretching things here and they are relying on a guy who's just unimpressive at the least and really awful at the worst. And so they were able to make a pretty good case. This is an inveterate liar. This is someone who simply can't be trusted. If that's the best you have, come at us. So there were benefits for both sides here. Does it change the end game for Donald Trump? Probably not. It's not the end game. It's not even necessarily a turning point, but it is an important moment in this ongoing clash of representations of what Donald Trump is and how uh, good or bad he is for the country. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. As Mark noted, although Cohen testified to Congress over a three-day period, the day everyone's eyes were glued to was Wednesday, when he pulled no punches in a televised public hearing. Our Post Reports team followed that hearing in real time, getting reactions and analysis along the way as the day unfolded. 
Here's their report on how things went down on Wednesday, guest hosted by Post reporter Kimbrielle Kelly. I am cold. <laughs> it is not a smart day to bike. That's Post reporter Karin Demersion. I cover national security issues on Capitol Hill, which includes this whole extended Russia probe. Karen was at the Capitol Wednesday morning to cover Michael Cohen's long-awaited testimony before the House Oversight Committee. In two months, Cohen is headed to prison, where he will serve three years for crimes he pleaded guilty to committing while he was a personal lawyer for President Trump. It is just about 9.30. We are standing outside the quieter side entrance to the Rayburn office building, which is one of the House office buildings, and it's where the House Oversight Committee has its suite, um, including the hearing room into which we are all going to smush ourselves because there are so many people here that want to see this happen. And probably, I mean, if yesterday's 10-hour closed-door affair at the Senate Intelligence Committee is any guide, we are probably going to be here all day and possibly into the night because um, it's a big committee. Each of the members get five minutes to ask questions and they are going to not give up a single second and probably push it and we're going to be here for a while. Great. All right. Let's head in. Cool. Oh, no, no. There is a line. (laughs) But a small one. It's fine. Today, the committee will hear the testimony of Michael Cohen, President Donald Trump's longtime personal attorney, and one of his closest advisors over the last decade. President Trump's former lawyer and self-confessed fixer, Michael Cohen appeared before a congressional committee today, a chastened man. I am here under oath to correct the record, to answer the committee's questions truthfully, and to offer the American people what I know about President Trump. I recognize that some of you may doubt and attack me on my credibility. I am ashamed of my own failings and publicly accepted responsibility for them by pleading guilty in the Southern District of New York. There is a lot of back and forth sniping. Not as much between Democrats and Republican lawmakers as between lawmakers and Cohen, especially on the GOP side. It is a one, not a one-note case, but there's one refrain, basically, that the Republicans are driving, which is that you lied before, so we can't trust you now. To our nation, I am sorry for actively working to hide from you the truth about Mr. Trump when you needed it most. For those who question my motives for being here today, I understand. I have lied, but I am not a liar. And I have done bad things, but I am not a bad man. I have fixed things, but I am no longer your fixer, Mr. Trump. My testimony certainly does not diminish the pain that I have caused my family and my friends. Nothing can do that. And I have never asked for, nor would I accept, a pardon from President Trump. He frequently acknowledges how he lied. He frequently talks about how much he has to lose um, in going to prison and being separated from his family. He talked about his motivations. He talked about his impressions of the president. But then he just goes point by point and interspersed in there. Not many people do their opening statements with exhibit A, B, C, or I guess they were numbered in this case. But he was ready to just to, to make the strongest case that he knows how about Trump being, in his words, a liar, a cheat, a racist. I am not a perfect man. I have done things I am not proud of. 
and I will live with the consequences of my actions for the rest of my life. I may not be able to change the past, but I can do right by the American people here today. Cohen said that he was ready to take responsibility and tell the truth about Donald Trump. I am ashamed of my weakness and my misplaced loyalty, of the things I did for Mr. Trump in an effort to protect and promote him. I am ashamed that I chose to take part in concealing Mr. Trump's illicit acts rather than listening to my own conscience. I am ashamed because I know what Mr. Trump is. He is a racist, he is a con man, and he is a cheat. He addressed the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels, providing what he said was evidence. I am providing the committee today with several documents, and these include a copy of a check Mr. Trump wrote from his personal bank account after he became president to reimburse me for the hush money payments I made to cover up his affair with an adult film star and to prevent damage to his campaign. Cohen also addressed key issues which have been the focus of the special counsel's investigation, including the WikiLeaks email hack and the infamous Trump Tower meeting with Russians about, quote, dirt on Hillary Clinton. Days before the Democratic convention, I was in Mr. Trump's office when his secretary announced that Roger Stone was on the phone. Mr. Trump put Mr. Stone on the speakerphone. Mr. Stone told Mr. Trump that he had just gotten off the phone with Julian Assange and that Mr. Assange told Mr. Stone that within a couple of days, there would be a massive dump of emails that would damage Hillary Clinton's campaign. Mr. Trump responded by stating to the effect, wouldn't that be great? Questions have been raised about whether I know of direct evidence that Mr. Trump or his campaign colluded with Russia. I do not. And I want to be clear. But I have my suspicions. Sometime in the summer of 2017, I read all over the media that there had been a meeting in Trump Tower in June of 2016 involving Don Jr. and others from the campaign with Russians including a representative of the Russian government, and an email setting up the meeting with the subject line, dirt on Hillary Clinton. Something clicked in my mind. I remember being in a room with Mr. Trump, probably in early June of 2016, when something peculiar happened. Don Trump Jr. came into the room and walked behind his father's desk, which in and of itself was unusual. People didn't just walk behind Mr. Trump's desk to talk to him. And I recall Don Jr. leaning over to his father and speaking in a low voice, which I could clearly hear, and saying, the meeting is all set. And I remember Mr. Trump saying, okay, good, let me know. Nothing went on in Trump world, especially the campaign, without Mr. Trump's knowledge and approval. So I concluded that Don Jr. was referring to that June 2016 Trump Tower meeting about dirt on Hillary with the Russian representatives when he walked behind his dad's desk that day. 
and that Mr. Trump knew that was the meeting Don Jr. was talking about when he said, that's good, let me know. It's just after 11 o'clock. Michael Cohen just finished his testimony to the House Oversight Committee. What are your first impressions, Roz? Well, Cohen's testimony was released overnight, so he stuck very closely to the written document that we had received. But that document just had basically one bombshell per page. And hearing him read it aloud is just such an astounding moment. Post reporter Roz Helderman has been covering the Russia investigation. She was monitoring the hearing here in the Post newsroom. He seems like a man who has been broken by the moment. He is, of course, going to be reporting to prison in two months. He seems like a guy who is headed to prison, has lost everything. But he read in a clear, strikingly somber uh, tone. The real question is going to be, what does the rest of the day bring? And can he hold up under what will be intense questioning from Republicans? What do you think was most significant about what he said? There were a few really significant things he said. One was this claim that we've never heard before, which was that he says that he was in the office with Donald Trump in July of 2016, shortly before the big WikiLeaks release of stolen emails from the Democratic Party. And he heard Roger Stone call Trump and on speakerphone tell him that he had just spoken to Julian Assange and Assange had told him that a big dump of Hillary Clinton emails was going to be coming out very soon. Stone has denied that. He denied that in a text message to my colleague Manuel Roy Franzia just this morning. It certainly conflicts with everything Stone has said before. But that is a really shocking claim that Donald Trump knew in advance about what was coming from WikiLeaks. Other than that, I mean, I was just really struck by the character notes. You know, he had this recitation that the man he knew and worked for for 10 years was a liar, a cheat, a con man, a racist. Um, I thought that there was this really really uh, small but incredibly sort of personal and telling moment where he was describing the Stormy Daniels reimbursement scheme. And he talked about his particular regret at having lied to the first lady, which, of course, is a reminder that Donald Trump to this day continues to deny he actually had an affair with Stormy Daniels. And, you know, this is Michael Cohen saying, yeah, he did. He did have that affair. He told me to lie to the first lady about that. And I feel badly about it. She didn't deserve it. Now, when you were talking about um, the Roger Stone piece being significant, and I think Michael Cohen said that that dump was supposed to come a couple days later. Why is the WikiLeaks so relevant? Why is that so important to this case and what's happening right now? So WikiLeaks and the releases of the stolen emails has always been, from the start, the heart of the sort of Russian coordination question. We know that those emails, it's been charged at least as crimes, were stolen by Russian operatives and given to WikiLeaks to release to the public and affect the election. So any suggestion that Donald Trump knew about that in advance, countenanced it, shows him in on that Russian plot to disrupt the election. Having said that, I will say, you know, I think there's going to be some natural skepticism about that claim. Roger Stone has been charged with seven felonies, mostly related to lying to Congress. One of the things he has told Congress is that he was not in contact with Assange and did not know anything about these emails in advance. And he was not charged with lying about that issue. Bob Mueller has all the phone records. He has all the phone records that would show whether or not there's records of a phone call between Roger Stone and Donald Trump in July of 2016 in this time period 
period. He has all of Roger Stone's records to show whether there's records of a phone call between Julian Assange and Roger Stone. You would certainly think that if he had records showing uh, evidence to back up this claim for Michael Cohen, he would have charged it. And the discussion and the testimony about the Trump Tower meeting, that seemed pretty significant. But Michael Cohen was very clear that he had some assumptions about what the conversation was. But what was your take about his testimony? Yeah, tantalizing but inconclusive, right? Uh, You know, this came up over the summer when Lanny Davis started telling news organizations that Michael Cohen had told investigators that he had evidence that the president's son had told Donald Trump about this Trump Tower meeting with the Russian lawyer. Donald Trump has denied that many, many times, said he did not learn about that meeting until 2017. Donald Trump Jr. has also denied it. So if Michael Cohen had evidence to the contrary, it would show that they were lying and that, you know, Donald Trump knew this key fact of the story that he had always said he didn't. You know, the story as told by Michael Cohen is not at all definitive, right? He says that he uh, uh, remembered after the Trump Tower meeting became public, he remembered an episode from around that time period, June 2016, when something kind of odd happened and Donald Trump Jr. went into his father's office, went behind his desk, which Cohen says was unusual, and sort of spoke to him in a low voice and said, the meeting is set. And uh, Trump responded, okay, good. Uh, you know, the meeting could be any meeting. He doesn't have a day when this happens. He doesn't have another witness. He doesn't have an email or contemporaneous memo he wrote to himself about it. You know, it's a little hard to to find that to be conclusive evidence. Was there anything significant about Michael Cohen in his testimony stating that Donald Trump was individual one? I think that was a made-for-TV drama moment. I mean, we knew uh, Donald Trump was individual one. He had said that in court, but clearly that was a moment intended for the drama because there's been a lot of conversation about individual one. So now you've got video footage of Michael Cohen looking in the camera and saying, you know, unless there is any question about this, individual one is Donald J. Trump. There were at least a half a dozen times between the Iowa caucus in January of 2016 and the end of June when he would ask me, how's it going in Russia? Referring to the Moscow Tower project. You need to know that Mr. Trump's personal lawyers reviewed and edited my statement to Congress about the timing of the Moscow Tower negotiations before I gave it. So to be clear, Mr. Trump knew of and directed the Trump-Moscow negotiations throughout the campaign and lied about it. He lied about it because he never expected to win. He also lied about it because he stood to make hundreds of millions of dollars on the Moscow real estate project. During a break in the hearing, a little afternoon, we talked to David Farenthold, who has been investigating the president's businesses and charities for The Post, and asked him what it means that Trump continued working on the project well into the campaign. 
it just shows that Trump had this ongoing financial relationship with Russia. And, a, you know, and this is a project that would have involved the Russian government's approval. I think that Cohen had said he's reached out to the Kremlin for help on this. And so he clearly saw this as not just a business deal in Russia, but a business deal with Russia. And if Trump was uh, seeking Russian help for a business project that was going to make him a lot of money long into his campaign, that both that's contrary to the things Trump has said about his own business dealings. And it also shows us more about Trump's relationship with Russia and what he thought he might have to gain from a better relationship with them. The other thing that David pointed to were these documents, these statements of financial condition that Cohen presented as evidence that Trump invented estimates about his own personal wealth in order to borrow money from banks. Basically, Trump uh, would come up with these statements about his own wealth that were not audited. They were just based on his own estimates of how much his buildings were worth, how much his brand was worth. And he would use them, he would give them to banks who were thinking about giving him a loan. And he would say, look, I'm, I'm good for the money. He'd give them to insurance companies and say, look, you know, I'm, you lower my premiums, look how much money I have. And these statements, we'd seen some of them before, but Michael Cohen produced two new ones we'd never seen before. So now you can see what Trump was representing about himself to banks and insurance companies. But also those statements and how he tried to use that to leverage more influence in the media as well. He would also apparently give them to people who were doing like most, you know, wealthiest lists, things like that. One of the crazy things about them is in 2012 to 2013, 2013, he's thinking about buying the Buffalo Bills, the NFL team. He needs a lot of money from Deutsche Bank. And all of a sudden, then he adds something that had never been in these financial statements before, $4 billion of brand so he counts his brand, he assigns a random number to it, $4 billion, he, and he adds that in as if it was a building or a golf club or something else, as if it was a tangible assets. And that raises his net worth from $4.8 billion to $8.something billion, um, just with a made-up number. Now, Cohen had said that Trump was still planning the Trump Tower in Moscow, even during the campaign, but that he didn't expect that the president didn't expect that he was actually going to win the presidency. And he only really expected to make money. What did you make of that statement? It's interesting to hear somebody inside Trump's orbit say it's what you've heard kind of through the grapevine that Trump expected this, started this as kind of a branding opportunity, started, saw this as a way to raise his profile. He talked about running for president a hundred times before. I never heard someone so close to Trump say he never expected to win. And he kept acting like a businessman all throughout because he kept expecting to lose. And most people expected him to lose. Um, so I, I'm not surprised that Trump thought that, but it's interesting to hear Michael Cohen say it. Watching the hearing, maybe the biggest takeaway of all was how each side played their part. We checked in with political reporter Aaron Blake, who has been watching the hearing all day. It's just after two o'clock now, and after several hours, we've got a little bit of a sense of how there is clearly a strategy by both the Democrats and the Republicans. What are you seeing? Republicans clearly have the more concerted strategy, and it's probably because this is a little bit simpler of a hearing for them. They have been all about attacking Michael Cohen's credibility, bringing him down as a person, and not just arguing that he has lied, but also that he has not just lied for the president, but that he has lied to further his own career and enrich himself. And so with very few departures, we have seen almost every Republican on this committee attack Michael Cohen as somebody who should not be allowed to testify, who can't be trusted, and have even suggested that maybe this hearing is a farce in the first place. 
Um, Democrats, on the other hand, have been trying to dig into what he said in his opening statement, trying to get more details on what else might be out there. He has alluded to other things that could be under investigation or or might be worthy of investigation. Uh, So they've been trying to advance this and, and I think really in a lot of ways struggling to find what's beyond what was a pretty explosive opening statement from Michael Cohen in which he seemed to uh, pack many of the most important things that he was going to reveal today. It definitely seems like a lot of the questions today center around um, partisan politics and people may be left having more questions. Do you feel like people who are watching this um, feel satisfied? It's probably not as satisfying as as people would have thought if they are just tuning into their first uh, congressional hearing. It's a messy process. These lawmakers only have five minutes with which to make an impact and try and get something out of a witness. Uh, What often happens in these cases, and this is certainly the case today, is that the people who really want to learn something tend to be interested in different things. So it really jumps around a lot. And we may not see lawmakers follow up on really important points that other lawmakers have picked up on. And so it's been a little bit disjointed, but usually, generally speaking, in a hearing like this, if you get two to three major revelations in the question and answer section, uh, the lawmakers will be pretty happy with that. Do you think anything's going to change as a result of today's hearing? The biggest change that could come out of this hearing would be in the realm of what's being investigated. Is there something that Michael Cohen brings forward that maybe investigators weren't aware of? Is there something that's under investigation that we weren't aware of and that is now being introduced to the American public? Uh, I, I think that Michael Cohen is hinting at a lot of potential wrongdoing, but he may not have a whole lot of smoking guns. And so, uh, you know, to the extent that his accounts help the investigators fill out a larger picture, that's really how he's valuable. And especially given he has credibility problems as somebody who has lied to Congress, you know, relying just upon the things that he says was never going to be the whole story here. Great. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? I'm Carol Alderman filling in for Allison Michaels. If you liked this, please share it with family and friends and let Allison know on Twitter at Allison Mikes or me at I am Carol Beth. And if you liked what you heard from Post Reports, you can get more from that podcast at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. They have new episodes every weekday. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That as a team effort here at The Post? It's hosted by Allison Michaels, produced by me, Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music from Ted Muldoon.
There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover, from global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.